Well, thanks, guys, for uh, reading Scripture this morning, reading for us. Last week, first week of this series, as you can tell, uh, is named Big, Christi- Big Picture Christianity. Why are we here? And if you think back to last week, I, I started, and I'll use this illustration throughout because I think this helps kind of unify this, this series. The illustration of a, of a puzzle, and particularly a big puzzle, one of those big several thousand piece puzzle set that uh, is very difficult, almost impossible to put together if we don't have the box top. Have you ever tried to b- put together a big puzzle without that box top? It's difficult. Uh, but what typically happens, and, and this, is, this is kind of a, a good illustration of the church, we, we, we don't have the big picture of scripture a lot of times, and so we we tend to find the pieces that are alike, and we put little sections of the puzzle together, and we have little sections spread out on the table, but we don't have what we need to connect them all together. And so you have some traditions that emphasize one thing and other traditions and denominations that may emphasize another aspect of Scripture, and yet another that that concentrates on, on yet another part of it. And so we, we tend to be, as a, as a church universal, tend to be sort of fragmented in our approach. And oftentimes that's, again, because we just don't have a good big picture of what God is up to uh, in, in Christianity, in other words. So that's what, that's what this series is about. Last week we looked in particular at what is God like, and we looked at Exodus 34 uh, in particular, that passage that God gives us his self-description. And if you remember, he describes himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, and that, that's how God describes himself. And you can sum all that up by saying that he is self-giving. The Father, Son, and Spirit have existed for all eternity, co-equal, co-eternal, and they have been focused on each other. They have been pouring love, self-giving love, into the other members of the Godhead. And they tell us in Genesis 1.26, if again, if you think back to last week, that we are made, to quote Moses here in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. And so the premise of this whole series is that more than anything else, We are to exhibit self-giving love because that's most what God looks like in his essence. Even in way over the other end of scripture in 1 John 4, John said that God is love. His very essence is love. And that doesn't make sense unless we see it in the context of this triune God of three persons eternally pouring themselves into one another, this self-giving love. And so again, that's more than anything. Remember Jesus said, uh, and we, we, we saw this verse last week as well. You will know my disciples how? By how we love. How well our lives exhibit this self-giving love. And unfortunately, we're, we're known for lots of things these days. Not always, unfortunately, uh, are we recognized for our self-giving love. But that's what we were made and cre- or designed and created to image, to, to imitate in God. And so this morning we continue this series. Um, we wanna, we've already read, the, the, as you've seen, the Old Testament verses, and let me just speak to those real quick. Uh, the verse in Jeremiah, 
very interesting because the Old Testament doesn't, doesn't concentrate as much on this, this aspect of God's self-giving love, although we do see that the, those words steadfast love talked about over and over in Scripture or the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. They talk about the steadfast love of God, and we've talked about that in the past. That one Hebrew word that I would encourage you to know, besides shalom, is hesed, that self-giving love of God, which has its equivalent in the New Testament. The equivalent word is grace. And so, so that's in that, that, uh, that Jeremiah passage, just to set the context there, the, 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 the um, Israelites have been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, remember, came in and just destroyed the city. He sent the very best and the brightest off to Babylon, like Daniel. Remember Daniel and his, him, he and his, his friends who were, the, who were the advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar? He sent the best and brightest off there. He destroyed the city. He left the, the people without shepherds, quote-unquote. He left them without leaders, and, and he destroyed their way of life. He took them away from the land that had been theirs for centuries, and, and that, was, that was part of their identity was their land. And yet, Jeremiah is telling these people to look out for the welfare of the Babylonians before you look out for your welfare. Now, now think about that. In, in, in modern terms, that might be like, uh, a prophet coming to the Jews in Poland and during World War II and saying, look out for the welfare of your Nazi captors before you look out for your own welfare. Look out for their welfare, and in that you will have your welfare. Those are examples in the Old Testament, example of the Old Testament self-giving love of God. We saw that earlier also in the, in the passage that... Um, that Ben read, that Paul quotes Jesus saying, it's better to give than receive. Now, that just goes against our nature as sinners because we want to take. We want things coming to us because we're the center of our world. And yet God is not like that. It's in his nature to give first. That's what we're called to image. That's what this series is about. Today, we want to drill down especially into this passage, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 13. And remember last week, I talked about the the reason that things get so fragmented sometimes is that I think that we do in our Bible study and in our preaching, we tend to to emphasize exposition, expository preaching and studying. And so we drill deep into a small passage, maybe 10, 15 verses or smaller and, and we do that all over Scripture, and so we have all these little bits and pieces of Scripture, but we, again, we don't bring them together. That's where topical sermons are very helpful. Last week was a topical sermon. Uh, today's going to be an expository sermon because we're going to go deep into this passage, or as deep as we can in 20, 25 minutes. But, again, that's, that's why we need to, to have both. You know, lots of people think expository is the be-all and end-all of preaching, and it's good. It's necessary. But we need breadth as well. And in our personal study, we need to study expositionally. We need to study different passages. But we also need to read Scripture. That's why we have these yearly Bible reading plans. So the the rule of thumb is we read Scripture for breadth to get the big picture. And it takes... A lot, many, many years to do that, to get the big picture, because we have to read it over and over. It's a long book, right? 
with lots of different writers, lots of different genres. But we read for breadth and we study for depth. And in so doing, we start to bring together a big picture. And as we do that, we begin to see the picture of God emerge who is self-giving. He pours himself out. We see that specifically in our passage this morning. So, let's dig into it. Point one, self-giving love. What does it look like in Jesus the Son? Paul's passage here gives us a very good picture of what this self-giving looks like. As we've seen in the Old Testament, in the God that we could not see, but now we have the God that we can see, the person of Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has taken on human form, and we see now, in flesh and bone, what self-giving love looks like. That's what Paul tells us here in this passage. And it, if you're not careful, you just breeze right past this passage, and you, you lose the majesty of it, the wonder of of this passage. I, I, this is one of, to me one of the super passages of Scripture because it is so, so important that we grasp what's going on here. Uh, the, the verses 6 through 11, many scholars believe that those aren't Paul's words specifically. They're, they're either a, a, an early church hymn or they may have been a confession or a creed that the church used in worship. But regardless, they are about Jesus and what he uh, what he look, looks like, if you will. Um, let's see, verses 6 through 8 in particular are the ones I want to concentrate on this morning. We don't have time to delve into the whole thing. But specifically, Paul starts by saying that Christ Jesus, that, that is, he being in very nature God. Again, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, he, he is a mirror image of God. Remember in John when he was talking to his disciples uh, on the night before he died on the cross? Uh, Thomas said, show us the Father. And, and, and Jesus said, well, if you've seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And that's what Paul is telling us here. This, this hadn't been worked out yet in, in, the, in the overall understanding of the church. It would take centuries for them to pull all this together. But you're seeing the nascent, the, 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 the embryonic form of that, that doctrine, if you will, beginning to develop right here in this passage, in that statement. But it's, it's incredible what he says about Jesus. Um, he did not consider equality with God, that is God the Father, Something to be used for his own advantage. Other translations say something to be grasped, to be hoarded, to say, oh, no, it's mine, you can't have it. Jesus was not like that because that's not what God is like. That's amazing because that's so unlike me. That's unlike, so unlike us as sinful people. If you think about it, when, you're, when your kids are really small, and they hadn't learned to manipulate things, and they hadn't learned the, the nuance of hiding their selfishness. You know, they weren't, quote-unquote, mature yet. They had no problem saying, no, I'm not doing that, no, or mine, I want it, it's mine. Now, as we, as we mature, we, we, can, we can do that in what's more nuanced terms without being so obvious about it. But our first inclinations as sinners is to always... Think of myself first. 
and what's most to my advantage. And it just amazes me when I look at this passage and realize that is not what God is like. Never has been, never will be. And without Christ, without what he has done for me, I have no hope of ever achieving this self-giving love. But it's through our salvation that he begins to, to recreate us, to make us into people like himself. Um, as we move to verse 7, he says, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The word literally there is that he emptied himself. That he, he laid aside all the power, all the privilege, all the position, all the glory and splendor that he had in heaven. He laid it aside willingly because of his self-giving nature, his self-giving love. He was obedient to the plan of his father and he was obedient to that plan that he would come to save, to rescue his people. And he laid aside that unimaginable glory and became one of us so that he could die for us and be raised again from the, or, or live in a perfect life, excuse me, not, not just die for us, live a perfect sinful or sinless life, die a, a sinner's death on our behalf and then be raised to new life to give us hope for what our future will look like. And he did that because it's in his nature to do things like that, to be self-giving. Again, he, he took on the very nature of a servant. What do we see here? That he's humble and willing to give himself. He is submissive. He is submissive to his Father's will. Willing, self-giving submission is what characterizes Jesus in this passage. And we are called, again, designed by God and created to mimic this, to imitate this in how we deal with others. So verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's that word again, humbled, humility, obedient. Obedient to his father's will, submissive to his father's will. Laying down his life, setting his glory aside. That's what we see in Christ here. And he's doing it out of self-giving love because that is at the very essence of his nature. And again, that's what we are called to imitate. Point two about self-giving love. What does it look like then for us? What does it look like for us? We've seen it in Jesus. We've seen it in, in the man Jesus here in this passage. Now, what does it look like practically speaking for us? Well, Paul speaks to that here specifically uh, in verses, the early part. We'll go back here uh, to verses 2 through 5. And let me just say this about Philippians. I, I meant to mention this earlier and forgot. But Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to uh, the church in Philippi. Uh, it was not, it was one of his favorite 
groups of people. You can tell when you read this letter end to end that there's great affection that Paul has for these folks. Uh, they, they have a special place in his heart. They had supported him financially in his missionary endeavors. They had supported him sacrificially because they were not a well-off congregation. And so he just, they just had a special place in his heart. But as you read this letter, a lot of people think it's about Paul's joy because he's writing this letter from prison, and you see the word joy mentioned a lot in this, this letter, and that, that's definitely a theme. But behind, the, there's, a, there's a backstory here, and you'll see it in, in chapter 1 where he prays for the Philippians and says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And then over in chapter 4, it's strange because he, these things just kind of pop up. He says, I plead with Euodia, two ladies there, Euodia and Syntyche. He said, I plead that you would be like-minded, having the mind of Christ like we just read about here. And so you get the impression, the very distinct impression that there's some relational issues going on in this church. And Paul is being very subtle, not like in Galatians where he just comes out and just lets it rip. He just comes down hard on that, if you read Galatians. He comes down hard on that congregation. There's no doubt where he's coming from. Very subtle here. But this is the heart of this letter. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is the meat of it right here. And these verses, that, that, in verses 2 through 5, are what he tells us that that congregation should look like. This is what should be pervasive. This is what, when the world looks at your church, this is what they should see. This is what Jesus said. You will know my church by how well we love. Well, he, he spells it out for us here in the verses 2 through 5. So let's just look at that real quick. Um, let's see. Let me catch or find my place here. Uh, again, point two, self-giving love. What does it look like for us? Uh, in your relationships with others, have the minds had the same, excuse me, that same mindset as Christ Jesus. This mindset, this way of thinking, it's so embedded in you that you don't even, you don't even think about it anymore. It's just second nature. It's become such a habit. That's the kind of mindset he's talking about. It's not something that's even necessarily conscious. Uh, it's just become part of who you are. Have this mindset. And this mindset that he's talking about is what we just described in verses 6 through 8. Um, but he says, have the sa- be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and of mind. Again, he describes Jesus in, as that, in that way in verses 6 through 8 that we looked at earlier. But here's the key. The key phrase here, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, be self-giving. Now, we think of selfish ambition and vain conceit, and a lot of times, if if you're like me, you're tempted to think about, oh, wow, you know, old so-and-so, that's a good description of him or her. And that may well be true. But I don't think about me. And that's the problem oftentimes. Not only, not only unbelievers do this, they compare themselves to other people and say, well, I'm, I'm better than so-and-so. Well, we're not comparing ourselves to so-and-so. We're par- comparing ourselves to Jesus in this passage, who is utterly and completely self-giving. 
As sinners, our tendency is always to do things out of selfishness. We always think of ourselves first. How can I, how can I manipulate the situation? And I may not even do it consciously, it's so embedded in me. But how can I manipulate this situation to my advantage? We see it in our children, even the, at the very earliest of ages. And we see it in ourselves. And that's the very antithesis of who God is. God is first and foremost self-giving. So now Paul gets very practical, again, even more so. Not looking to our own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Uh, The ESV says not looking only to your own interests. That's probably, uh, I think, a little bit better translation there. But, but again, thinking about how something affects someone else before I look at it from my perspective and my own best interests, especially within the church, especially within believers, who we, we should have each other's backs all the time. Imagine if you had a congregation full of people who are always thinking about what's best for the others. Would you as an individual have to worry about your own self-interest? No, let's say that congregation has 100 people in it. Well, you've got 99 other people who are watching your back who have your best interest at heart. That's a lot better than just you having your self-interest. Because if it's just you and everybody else is like you, well, guess what? We're all looking out for our self-interest, and we're like bumper cars at the old fair where we we just keep bumping into each other and ricocheting off of each other. Imagine what that would look like. Imagine the harmony that would be a part of that church. Imagine how, what that would look like to someone who walked in off the street who'd never been in a church, and they walk in and say, wow, you guys are loving people. Well, well guess what? That's what Jesus said. He says that's what you should, they should say. We should be characterized by self-giving love. That's what salvation is meant to do, is turn us into, back into people who can love the way God loves. That's why we are here. That's why we are made in his image to remind people that the God who designed and created all of creation, including us, is a self-giving God who is good beyond our wildest imaginations. So how do we become self-giving? Verses 12 and 13 kind of hold the key here. And it's unfortunate when you look in your if you look at it, those of you that have your Bible or your, your phone app open, most translations, unfortunately, I know I, this is particularly true in the ESV and the NIV because I've looked at those more than any, but they have a, a section break here that, that if you're not careful, you'll let that think like, okay, totally new thought, totally new sections, talking about something else now. And that's just not the case here because the first word is what? It's therefore. And you've heard this before, but... What is there for there? Yeah, it's there for what came before this. It's connecting these two passages. And usually what comes after the therefore is the practical application of what was described before the therefore. And that's, that's true here as well. <clears throat> um, so he says, therefore, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And remember, we're, we're doing this in the context of verses 1 through 
through 11. All right? Uh, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice, though, and this, is, this can be a scary verse for us, uh, especially gospel-centered churches who, who, who want to emphasize grace above all else. He does not say, work for your salvation. But we get to this verse and it says, work out your salvation. And immediately like, oh, wait a minute, what? I can't work for my salvation. Again, Paul is not saying work for, he's saying work out. And here, let me just go off script here for just a second. When we look at our salvation and we look at the various components of it from God's perspective, there's different pieces of it. There's justification that we hear about a lot that God declares us not guilty. He gives us the perfect righteousness of Christ. He imputes that to us. He regenerates us. He, our, our spirits are dead. We cannot respond to God. So, so he regenerates us. He brings new life into us, that spark of life uh, that the Puritans talked about. And, and a, so that we are able to now respond to God's offer of free grace. Uh, he adopts us as his own child. Those are all things that God does in our conversion that we have nothing to do with. We, there's no way we can work those things out. Theologians call that a monergistic work. Big word, right? Well, if you think back to your physics, high school physics class, and, and I'm sure Ben can help us here because he's an electrical engineering major from Georgia Tech. He had lots of physics classes. But the unit of work, a measurement for a unit of work, do you remember what that is? Anybody remember that? It's, huh? No? It's erg, right? It's erg. It, you see it in the word energy, right? It's work. And so monergistic, again, mono being single, a single entity is at work. But in our sanctification, another part of our salvation, where we're be, God is conforming us to Jesus' image, we work with. And that's called, the theologians call that synergistic, to work with. S-Y-N meaning win, with. So we collaborate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification and being conformed to the image of Christ. That part of our salvation occurs from between conversion and death. We work, we collaborate we, with the Holy Spirit. We work out our salvation. And notice how he describes the urgency with which we are to do this. What does he say there? He says, work out your salvation with what? With fear and trembling. In other words, this is supposed to be a priority. There's an urgency here in Paul's words. Because this is supposed to be front and center in our lives, in our daily lives. Working out this salvation. So why? So that we become more and more like Christ. We become more and more, uh, our lives more and more exhibit that self-giving love that we see pervasively mentioned throughout Scripture when it describes who God is. Again, we see here that our salvation is meant to conform us uh, to Christ's image. Um, and, and then verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And this is another amazing, amazing sentence here. Uh, again, 
this, this, he's telling us here that as we're working with, as we're collaborating with the Holy Spirit, even the Holy Spirit has gone ahead of us and he's given us the very inclination to want to do this. The very inclination to want to be conformed to the image of Christ. That comes from God. More grace, grace upon grace. Let's see, what else? There was one other thing here. Again, he, um, to, to, to will and to act according to his good purpose. It is God, again, who is, who is doing this. And he's giving us the energy, the power to do it. So while we're at work, working out this salvation, Holy Spirit comes alongside and empowers us and inclines us to want to go deeper and deeper into being conformed to the image of Christ. It's interesting, a a totally separate passage that we didn't look at, haven't read this morning, but Colossians 1.29, Paul is describing his ministry to the church there um, and and how it was a struggle for him. And, And he says this, he says, To this end I labor. To this end, that is his ministry to the church. He says, I labor struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. Now, if you're not careful, you go about, you almost think, I struggle with all of the energy in me, right? But, it, but it's almost like you read that passage, you got to stop and you go back, wait a minute, he said, with all his energy, he's struggling, he's laboring, but he's doing it all in the power of the Spirit. And we see that at work in this, this verse 12 and 13. Again, uh, of Philippians 2 here, that... It is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. What is his good purpose? To be conformed to the image of Christ so that we will exhibit self-giving love. Again, particularly within the church. But even outside the church to the degree that we, we can do that. We'll look at that more, uh, really a lot more in week four here. Uh, the, what is that, the 14th? Uh, but... but uh, won't get into that right now. Um, so, what does it mean to work out our salvation? Let, this is the application portion. What does it mean that we work out our salvation? We talk a lot about means of grace in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, specifically, uh, we talk about communion. Okay, the, uh, again, one of the one of the sacraments of the church, which is a means of grace. We talk about scripture reading. We talk about prayer. Uh, and, and though it's not necessarily a means of grace, we talk about fellowship, one with the other. Those are means by which we work out our salvation. Again, when we come to the table, which we're not having today, but when we come to the table, that is a means of grace. And we cannot explain what God does there. Excuse me. But in his grace... Again, and that's the, that's the beautiful thing about this phrase, means of grace. Lots of people call them spiritual disciplines, and that's okay. But, but we prefer means of grace because spiritual disciplines tends to make me think about what I have to do. But when I use the, word, the phrase means of grace, it's what God is doing in me. He's pouring grace into me through this sacrament of the table. We can't explain how he does it, but he feeds our souls through communion. When we open Scripture and the Spirit uh, comes alongside us to, to, 
to give us a deeper and deeper understanding of what it is we're reading. Again, we are working out our salvation. That is, that is God speaking to us about who He is and what He expects of us. When we pray, we're, we're, we're informed by those, those Spirit-empowered words of Scripture and, and that Spirit who has enabled me to, to understand them. And, and then I can begin to pray them back to God with, with, with His, the way, the way He would have me understand them. I begin to talk and, and pray to Him in ways that are according to His will. Now, those are, those are, we, we, we already know that's how, how what, what we do as Christians in our personal worship. But that's what it means to work out our salvation. We help each other. We come alongside each other as the body of Christ. And, and for those with the gift of teaching, they teach us. Those with the gift of service, they serve us. But we work out our salvation with the intention of being conformed to the image of our self-giving God. So as we gather this morning and we think about this passage, we think about what it shows us of Jesus and his willingness to give himself away, to empty himself, and that that's what we're designed to do. That's what we've been created to do. And in salvation, we've been recreated, if you will, reborn to show that kind of love. And it's our responsibility to work out our salvation so that we see that begin to happen in our lives. Never perfectly in this life, but we begin to see it emerge more and more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as 